0: Holy Spirit, we pray, come and overrule and overwhelm. As we turn to the preaching of your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, overrule and overwhelm my mouth and my words, our lips and our ears, so that what is said and what is heard is in accordance to the word of God, within the will of God, for the glory of God and the exaltation of Jesus. Come and do a work in our lives. Be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. Well, today is Trinity Sunday. I can tell that you're overwhelmed by the gasps and awe. Trinity Sunday in the liturgical calendar, that that series of seasons that we follow here in the Anglican Church begins in Advent in early December leading up to celebration of Christmas, the celebration of the Incarnation. We celebrate the Epiphany of Jesus, the manifestation of His glory as the Incarnation of the Eternal Son for uh, a while after the Christmas season. Then we kind of shift gears on Ash Wednesday. We step into Lent and we prepare during the season of Lent for the celebration of Easter, crucifixion of the One Incarnate and the Resurrection. We work our way to the Ascension and at the ascension, the sun returns from whence he came. He goes back to the the, the heavens. He sits at the right hand. And on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And then we celebrate Trinity Sunday. That's today. Last Sunday was Pentecost. Today is Trinity Sunday. And I think there's a reason why Trinity Sunday comes at this point in the year. Let's be honest. Nothing really huge happens until Advent comes back. We've just celebrated the the big events of God's sending mission. And here we are on Trinity Sunday celebrating the one who sent the Son in the Incarnation, the one who sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Here we are at Trinity Sunday seeking to celebrate at some level in truth God who has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It can be, in all honesty, uh, a really frightening task to attempt to preach on Trinity Sunday. It's a complex issue. It's a simply complex subject matter. And quite often, uh, the, the preaching of a sermon on Trinity Sunday is given over to seminarians or curates or first-year priests because, quite frankly, they need the experience. <laughs> and secondly, if they commit a little bit of heresy, well, we can wink and nod and say they got a lot yet to learn, don't they, buddy? I'm making a joke about that, but the the, the Trinity is difficult because it involves us created beings with finite minds attempting to contemplate and at some level understand a being who has eternally existed, a being who is outside of time, a being who is thus infinite. To talk about the Trinity means we must press into infinity beyond that which makes us comfortable, and that is daunting. Sometimes it's a fact that when we attempt to preach or speak about the Trinity, there's just the fact that we will are afraid that we will say something that is unsound or incorrect. When we try to speak or preach or teach about the Trinity, sometimes we fear preaching, teaching, communicating heresy. And while I certainly want to teach and preach only that which is in accordance with sound biblical doctrine. I do believe that sometimes it is in our fear to say something incorrect, we actually say nothing at all. And thus, we miss out on the importance, the greatness, the incomparable and unfathomable glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we miss out on that which God has done within time and history to redeem sinful men and women to himself. So let's today not allow fear to dictate that which we say or don't say about the Trinity, today I'd like to preach something that captures, if I can, even the tiniest shadow of the glory of the triune God. And so, like Buzz Lightyear, let's step to infinity and beyond. Eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect love, in perfect union, in perfect relationship. The reality of this triune existence is a biblical mystery. As theologian Fred Sanders has stated, a biblical mystery is something that's always been true, but it's been long concealed and is now revealed. The primary means of revelation regarding the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is the sending of the Son in the Incarnation. And it is the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost by the Father for the mission of redemption. The sending event recorded and proclaimed in Scripture in the sending for the purpose of saving mission, the Trinity stepped into the time that God had created, stepped into history and acted for the salvation of sons and daughters. At the moment of incarnation and on the day of Pentecost, the Son and the Spirit entered into time and history, and this triune action changes everything for the world. Today, as we think about the Trinity, we're going to be preaching out of Romans chapter 8, which we heard read for us this morning before we sang our processional hymn. And in this preaching of the Trinity, I I, want to focus on the Trinitarian action. More than try to prove to you the existence of the Trinity, I'm going to assume it and deal with what the Trinity has done on our behalf. Folks, as we see in St. Paul's letter, Romans chapter 8, there are essentially two types of people in the world. There are two camps, two tribes, into which we all will find residence, Well, we will all find life. The first is the camp of the flesh, and the second is the camp of the spirit. Residence within these two camps has nothing to do with uh, race or ethnicity. Residence within the camp of the flesh or camp of the spirit has nothing to do with culture or language, It has nothing to do with the way we vote in political elections or don't vote in political elections. It has nothing to do with whether we're Alabama or Auburn fans. It has everything to do and only to do with how one has responded to Jesus. So residence within the camp of the flesh or residence within the camp of the spirit has only to do with how one has responded to Jesus and in that response to Jesus – whether one has been and is alive in the flesh or alive in the spirit. And so in Romans chapter 8, which many commentators have referred to as sort of the apex of uh, Revelation and in the entire of the book entirety of the letter of the Romans, in the first ver- 13 verses of Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about a living according to the flesh in that camp or living according to the spirit or in that camp. And when he does this, Paul is making a declarative statement of fact as he distinguishes between non-Christians, those who live according to the flesh, and Christians, those who live according to the Spirit. And in Paul's letter, then, the camp of the flesh, let's first think about this in terms of the flesh not being a reference to our physical body. Rather, it is a metaphysical use of the word. Flesh is not a reference to the physical body, and thus, Living according to the flesh is not about paying attention to the body's needs, such as food and water, exercise and rest. In Paul's letters, his his metaphysical use of the word flesh operates very much like St. John uses the word world. It's in reference to the sinful and fallen component of the universe, of cultures, peoples and individuals aligned against God. To live according to the flesh is to live according to the desires and the dictates of that which is over and against God and His desires and His dictates. So living in the camp of the flesh is against God. And there it leads to death. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. And death here is to be understood in its ultimate sense. It's to be understood as eternal separation from the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in eternal damnation, what we call hell. That's one way to live in the world, a way that li- li- leads to death. But it doesn't have to be this way. Because the triune God, in his self giving love, has sent the Son and has sent the Spirit to bring people out of captivity to the flesh and thus death, and into the freedom of life in the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. To become a Christian, to be a believer in Jesus, means being transferred from the camp of the flesh and death and into the camp of the Spirit and life. Accomplished by grace through faith in the Son, the Father counts sinful people as righteous and grants them the indwelling Holy Spirit. Which is precisely why Paul can write, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so there are two camps in the world. Belonging to the camp of the Spirit of Jesus means life is different. It means everything is changed. As one commentator has stressed, Paul's language here is positional. He's depicting the believer's status in Christ, secured for him or her at conversion. And Paul has another word for this position, this positional status of a believer. That new word, the other word, is son, is daughter, through adoption. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Let's focus for just a few minutes on adoption. Perhaps something we haven't really considered before, perhaps something that we've neglected to consider. Adoption is no measly thing in human terms. And when it comes to being adopted by the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit, adoption is the greatest thing. A theologian by the name of J.I. Packer, who has forgotten more theology than I will ever know, referred to adoption into God's family as, quote, the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Another theologian by the name of John Murray, who wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he called adoption the apex of grace and privilege. Why do these men speak so highly of adoption? Why does Paul make such a big deal out of it? Paul uses high language and he elevates the status of redeemed humanity as he discusses the new relationship of the redeemed sinner with the triune God. And in the first century, adoption was a a common thing within Greek and Roman cultures. Adoption was a state of peace, a state of Security, where a child can be adopted or was adopted into a family receiving all the legal rights and privileges that could accrue to the natural child. In the triune act of adoption, the father adopts redeemed sinful men and women into his family to be his sons and his daughters through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And this is a real, positional, objective sense of adoption. In God's loving kindness, in His grace, He grants a new status to those who believe in Jesus the Son. The Father calls them children. And through the Son, as this new reality is given, conscious awareness of it and the exercise of the privileges inherent to it are raised up by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Your salvation, folks, is adoption by the Father, Through the Spirit, through the Son, in the Spirit. This adoption itself is into the life of the Trinity. It isn't as if God is making third cousins twice removed. God is making sons and daughters to share His life. And if we're not astonished by that, I got nothing else for you. The father, Fred Sanders writes, is extending the relationship of divine sonship from its home in the life of God down into human history. The son opens up the path of human sonship, and the spirit puts us into it. Maybe it is that we can only really begin to grasp the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of adoption by considering the privileges that come with it. Adopted by the Father through the Son in the Spirit, believers in Jesus have amazing privileges. Perhaps by seeing what this position uh, as a child to the Father through the Son in the Spirit is and does, perhaps then we can come into a better understanding of the thing itself and appreciate it all the more. And in this passage from Romans chapter 8, there are three privileges of adoption that Paul lists. And I've added a fourth because I think it is implicit here. Here. And I know that it's explicit elsewhere. The first privilege of adoption by the Trinity that Paul unfolds is in regard to obligation or obedience. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 12 of Romans chapter 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if this, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Adopted to the Father through the Son and in the Holy Spirit. Believers in Jesus are now free from the obligation of sin. Due to our sinful natures, our inherited guilt and the sinfulness, and our own sinfulness, and by our sins of commission and omission, it is not possible for the unredeemed man or woman to not sin. It is not possible for an unredeemed unredeemed person to not live under the obligation to the flesh. In Latin is the phrase non passe, non pecare. You cannot not sin if you are unredeemed. But for the son and daughter of God, there is a new and better way to be human as the Spirit comes to reside. In the power of the Holy Spirit, believers in Jesus are called into obedience to God. This process is called sanctification. Paul says we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. The implication is we are debtors to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. And now, under the, the blood of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit... On account of that which Jesus has done, the penalty for sin is broken for all who believe. And for all who believe, the power over, of sin over life is undone. And so now, rather than being non-passe non-pacare, now it is passe non-pacare. It it its possible to not sin. We are free from the obligation of flesh. Free to live in the Spirit. Free, as Paul says, to mortify the deeds of the flesh by putting them to death. Only because you're adopted into God's family. Not because you're good enough to do it, because you can't. But because He can and He will and He has given that which is necessary. That is a privilege of adoption. The indwelling Holy Spirit that makes it able for us to obey God and not the sinful flesh that kills us. What a privilege this is. From not able to sin to able to not sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. In adoption, believers in Jesus receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and in the gift of the Holy Spirit, believers receive freedom and receive power. Perhaps we can begin to see why adoption is called a high privilege. The second privilege found in adoption is that of prayer. In Romans chapter 8, jump to verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Adopted to the Father through the Son and in the Spirit, believers in Jesus are elevated to a status that, quite frankly, is almost too great for us to consider. In what some consider to be the greatest application of the theology of Trinitarian adoption, believers in Jesus are given the status of sons and daughters And listen, they are given the freedom and privilege to speak to the Father as the Son speaks to the Father. When Jesus prayed in the Gospels, how did he address the Father? Abba, Father. Look at Mark chapter 14. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, how did he say to address God in heaven? Our Father. And so, like Jesus, adopted believers can approach God not as some far-removed, uninterested deity who doesn't know us or care about us, rather we can approach him as father as dad, as the one who loves us, the one like whom Jesus said, our father, my father, that is the way you and I can pray because we've been adopted by the father through the son in the Holy Spirit folks, the triune God doesn't take half measures. he doesn't Make believers in the distant cousins twice removed. We are not the black sheep of the family. The Father adopts children, He makes heirs, and He gives them full access and all the privileges of calling Him exactly that which the Son calls Him, Father. We're beginning to see why this grace is astonishing. Connected to the second privilege is the third. As children of the Father, Those who are adopted adopted through Jesus in the Spirit, they are fellow heirs with Christ. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Heirs with Christ. Just remind ourselves who Jesus is, the Christ. He is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, sent by the Father for redemption. He is the one who suffered death upon the cross, was buried and was raised from the dead. The Christ is now the one who is ascended to the right hand of the Father, where He rules and reigns and intercedes on our behalf, and He's coming again. The glory of the Son, where heirs with glory of the Son's imperishable body, the glory of the Son in the presence of God, we are co-heirs with Christ. The glory of knowing God in this life and when the fullness of His kingdom comes to bear upon this earth in a new heavens and a new earth, being in the very presence of God for all eternity. I, such glory that I can't even describe it. Being an heir with Christ means glory to come. And Paul is quick to point out it means suffering. As we live in this world, we are embodied and we still have to face and deal with our own temptations and our own tendencies towards sin. We still have to deal with suffering as a result of the sin of others. We still have to face sin and sickness. They still abound. Sons and daughters of the family confront very much the same sort of rejection, persecution, and consequences of being like the son. But to this, Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. Why? Because we're co-heirs, adopted by the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. Can we see why adoption is the apex of grace? And yet there's at least one more privilege of, adopt- of adoption to consider. In the fourth chapter of St. John's Gospel, Jesus says, the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Adopted by the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit, children of God have the privilege of worshiping Him, and this is the result of His seeking. Folks, any consideration of the Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, any consideration of the work of the Trinity for the salvation of sinners must lead to doxology, to praise and to thanksgiving. We worship the triune God for who He is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for what He has done, which has redeemed us, pulled us out of the camp of the flesh, put us into the camp of the Spirit, granted us adoption by the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit, that we might live under obligation to the Spirit and not to the flesh, and thus put the death flesh and have life. We've been given the privilege of coming before Him as Father in prayer. We've been given the privilege of knowing that we are co-heirs with Christ. And we've been given the privilege to worship Him, the Creator of all that is, the One in whom we live and we move and we have our being, the One who sent of Himself to save. And so sons and daughters of God, adopted by the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit, Break out in joyful praise. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. People in the camp of the Spirit, people who live according to the Spirit, are adopted children of God, blessed with privileges that we can barely understand. But it should be this.